on our Rock Creek response list. You saw this on Friday. If you're not on that list, we would love to add you. If you have opportunity, you can drop your email address in the box out there. We have two email correspondences go out on Wednesdays and on Fridays. Those are our correspondences with the congregation. But you notice that along with the balminess of June that threatens to suck the life right out of you, we have a life-giving experience in June of celebrating an anniversary as a church. That we are 16 years old this June. We were started in June of 2000, and Kathy and I and Kayla at the time, who was eight months old and is now almost 16, and Andrew wasn't born yet, came here 15 years ago, and we're excited and thankful that we've been able to be here for that long. And one of the truisms that got worked into me rather early was a statement that Dietrich Bonhoeffer made in his classic work called Life Together. It's an amazing compilation of reflections and thoughts about what it means to be a Christian community, a one-anothering community, which are words you hear us use a lot. And one of the things he says is that very often, and it's so apropos for church plants, very often Christian communities come together as the result of another's wish dream, which is the word he uses. They come together with this thought, and nobody really fully realizes they have it. They have these unwitting expectations of what the Christian community should be, what it should look like. And I can attest, as many of you who are here at the beginning can, that there is a certain sweetness when things get started anew. And you start to think, oh my goodness, we are the first people in the history of Christendom to be and do the church like this. Jesus never got it right before, but with us, finally, he did. And you think that for about five minutes. That's short. But invariably what happens is, as you're living in a community together, you start realizing as you, so long as you're talking about your dream, you're talking about the vision of what we're going to be, everybody is, oh, they're so giddy with togetherness, drunk with fellowship. But the first time you make an actual decision about something, somebody or another is going to cry foul. They're going to blow their whistle like a referee. Ah, you're departing from the vision. You're not following Jesus anymore. And what they accidentally mean is, you're not following my plans for this church anymore. Which is the same thing as you're not following Jesus. We've departed from the vision. We've abandoned what we said we were going to be. Because what you realize is when people have ideas in their heads, you know, married people discover this after two or three seconds of marriage. When they have ideas in their heads, they think they're in agreement until those ideas take shape with actual words or actual decisions. And so Bonhoeffer says, God hates visionary dreaming. It makes dreamers proud and pretentious. What will happen is people sometimes come into Christian community with their own ideas of what the community should be like, and when it doesn't materialize the way they think it should, when the community is not as generous as they think or as loving as they think or as tender-hearted and forgiving as they think, it's not as warm, convivial as they think it should be, they become its accuser. They get grossly disillusioned with God, with other people, and, and even with themselves. And Bonhoeffer says, if you're lucky, that will happen. 
If you're lucky, God who loves us and who will not have us live in a dream world will quickly shatter any dreams you have about the community so that you don't love the idea of community more than the actual people in it. Let me say that again because I said it fast. God is deeply concerned that you not love your dream of community more than the actual people in the community. So if he loves you, he will shatter. And I saw this at Rock Creek early on. I get to see it all the time. God may, men make plans and God laughs. He shatters wish dreams so that you are not living in an illusory world, but you're living with your boots to the ground, learning how to love, not love, but actual people. Learning what it's like to be in a community of people that say, here's why we're here. We're foul-hearted, fickle faith but we've been acted on by Jesus Christ. That's why we have life. That's why we get to be here together. It's not because we have good skin, good teeth, and a good pedigree. And so the apostle, as we have gone through Galatians in this last chapter, is telling us, here is how you can not love the community as an idea, but how when the Spirit takes up residence in you and you're, you're starving the appetite of the flesh in order to indulge the appetite of the Spirit. You're trying to let Jesus' life have sway, letting it have influence over you. Here's how it will look in your walking around shoes. This is what it will look like in a community if you don't love your dream of community, but you love the actual people in the community. And he starts by this. He says, you will first need to be a community that restores gently. If you're going to not just love your dream of community, but love the actual people in it, as the Spirit is moving you, you're going to restore gently. Brothers and sisters, if someone is caught in a sin, you who are spiritual should restore that person gently. But watch yourselves, or you also may be tempted. Restore gently. Martin Luther said this verse one time saved his life. Have you ever used the Bible like that? This verse, one time. Sorry, did I just break that? (laughs) I can't. Can it withstand a 600-pound man tramping it? I was just giving you a visual of the God of peace crushing the head of Satan. Luther, who was a tormented man, as you know, said this particular verse. You, if someone is caught in a sin, you who live by the Spirit should restore that person gently. He said, this verse one time saved my life. I mention that to you because the Bible can do that. The person who learns to use these words in a savory way to say, these are life. These are meant to be something that I live on as much as I live off of carbs exclusively. These are life. And for Luther, they were life because they convinced him of this. The apostle envisioned that the community where Jesus was active, the gentle Jesus, the one who said, come to me and learn from me. Because I am gentle and humble of heart. When his spirit is living in that community, it doesn't mean we won't foul up anymore. Paul has just told us that you as a Christian are going to be a conflicted person. You're going to have dual centers of pressure going out from within you. One part of you that says, protect yourself, serve yourself, look out for yourself. No one else is going to. God's going to hurt you. You should be allergic to him. The other side of you, the spirit side, is saying, 
You weren't made for yourself. You were made for God. You were made for others. Life comes when you're emancipated from the gloomy little dungeon of yourself and thrust out into care for other people. If you forget yourself, then you find life. And Paul says those things are going to be battling within you. You're going to be conflicted. Which means you're going to sin. And the apostle says the community of people who have been formed by this fundamental fact that says, we know that we have never in our lives been good enough to curry God's favor, that our entrance requirement to be part of the church is that I have not kept God's law, but I trust another who has for me. That people like that are going to be in this community and they're still going to sin. And so the question is not, Oh my gosh, what do you do if actual people commit actual sins? It's what do we do afterwards? Because people will commit the sins. And he says, restore them gently. Think about that. The apostle speaking for Jesus. And that's what he thinks he's doing. So either he's a crazy person or he is. He thinks he's speaking for Jesus. And he says, here's what I want you to do. When someone does something embarrassing, when someone does something that they hope will not make the evening news. If someone finds out that God is live-tweeting their lives, think about that. If you had a big screen here and somebody was, just for the last seven days, we'll just say seven days, if somebody was recording or or live-tweeting everything you thought about in the last seven days, or everything you did while you hoped no one was looking, or everything you thought when you thought no one was noticing, or everything you didn't do because you didn't want to be bothered. And if someone was just kind of recording all of that for everybody to see, wouldn't you be excited? Would you be like a little kid saying, me first, please, me first. Tweet me. Tweet all the gunk of my life for everyone to see. I want everybody to see how lousy I am. Not many would say that, but Paul says the Christian community are people who say, we don't have to pretend. We have a Savior who's known the worst about us, but will not turn his face away. And now we live no longer for ourselves, but we live to please him. And so when people get caught, and he doesn't mean when you're caught in sin, like, aha! He means when you've been overtaken, like you're caught in a thicket. You've been entrapped. Because you still got this thing in you called the sinful nature. You still got an enemy out there called the devil who manifests himself as cats. Just kidding. I'm just making sure you're paying attention. It's a little warm. You have enemies within and outside. You're going to get caught in sin. So what happens? Restore them gently. We're the circulatory system of grace of God's grace. To show this kindness to each other when people fail because we know we have failed. You know Dwight Schrute? Dwight Schrute is a nerdy embodiment of self-righteousness. And he's hilarious on The Office. And in one particular episode, this power-hungry man is given this job by the feckless Michael Scott who says, Dwight, I want you to choose an insurance plan for everybody in the office. And Dwight says, question, how many people can I fire and he goes, no, no, you don't understand. See, this is how Dwight thinks. He's just eager to have power that he can employ at people, on people, against people. 
not for them. Michael says, no, no, you don't understand. I don't want you to fire anybody. I want you to pick an insurance plan for everybody. So he decides he can do it. Dwight decides that he will cut every possible benefit and get the cheapest possible thing so that he destroys the morale of everybody in the office, saving the company thousands. And he is approached by Pam and Jim, and they say, Dwight, you cut more than you needed to cut, didn't you? And he said, well, yes. Of course I cut more than I needed to cut. I saved the company so much money. And he says, but don't you work here too? Don't you want good insurance? And he says, I don't need it. What do you mean you don't need it? I've never been sick. I have a perfect immune system. I have perfect and superior genes. I'm a shrewd. I can raise and lower my cholesterol just by thinking about it. Why would you want to raise your cholesterol, Pam asks. So I could lower it, he says. You don't want Dwight Schrute picking out an insurance plan for you because he doesn't think he needs an insurance plan. You want somebody picking an insurance plan for you who's been sick, who has chronic illnesses, who knows what it's like to deal with doctors, who knows what it's like to deal with insurance companies, who knows what it's like to be buried under bills. You need somebody like that. And the apostle says, Christians, people who are moved by the spirit of the tender, burden-bearing Jesus are people who know what it's like to have been sin-sick. And so you can restore each other gently. You recognize, and I hope many of you have recognized this, if you listen to someone struggling with any particular kind of impolite sin or polite sin, whether it's greed or pornography, whether it's anger or envy, if you listen up closely enough, you'll start to recognize and resemble the things you're hearing. You'll say, oh my goodness, I'm not very far off from how this person thinks about things. There's no sin that you'll find alien to your own heart when you have been fully introduced to yourself. And so Paul says, let that make you gentle. Let that make you gentle in the way you deal with each other because Jesus wants this to happen. He doesn't want sinners in our congregation to be destroyed. He wants them to be restored. He wants them to get well. He wants them to be weaned off of their dependence on their own desires. And he wants them to breathe deep the grace of God. A high watermark in our church's history was preceded by Alan Dubel, a great man, our senior most member at the time, and an elder, and Sharon. I was sitting with them in a living room of a man who was a minister who had cheated on his wife. He had been defrocked. He had blown up his life. And after a long period and lots of steps, we sat there as this man was about, with his new wife, was about to be welcomed back into Christ church with his repentance, and the most stirring thing was Alan Duval, the oldest member of our congregation, looking at him in the eye, this man who had ruined so much about his life, and saying, I just want you to know I'm capable of anything. And he told him his own story of why grace was not fictitious to him. I just want you to know I'm capable of anything. 
And I loved it as we sat in this building and people laid hands on this man after he made public confession and they gave him the right hand of fellowship and welcomed him back. Pain, scars, you bet. Lingering effects, absolutely. Welcomed by Jesus Christ, manifested in actual physical touch and smiles and warm hugs. Yes. Restore each other gently, says the Apostle Paul. If you want to be a community that doesn't live in an illusory world, but loves the actual people in the community. The second thing he says is this, shoulder burdens. Don't just restore gently, but shoulder burdens. Carry each other's burdens, says verse 2, and in this way you will fulfill the law of Christ. If anyone thinks there's something when they're not, they deceive themselves. Carry each other's burdens, and in this way you will fulfill the law of Christ. Do you know that if you get a pickup truck, or if you have a pickup truck, you are the de facto mover of everybody you know and do not know? In fact, some people have sold pickup trucks just so people would stop calling them to haul things for them. You know this. If you have a truck, you know the abuse that comes to you. Hey, man, I know we haven't seen each other since high school back in 48, but you've got a truck, right? I just need to carry like a 6,000-pound thing. Can, that, can you help me lift that? The apostle assumes that the spirit of Jesus Christ is living in you. You've got the spirit of the one who said, I'm not afraid to get your trouble on me. I'm not afraid to burden bear. I'm not afraid to take your sin on me and in exchange give you life. The punishment that was to be upon you, I'll take on myself. I'll let my shoulders be crippled with loneliness and with despair, with derision, with disease, with sickness, with finitude, with exhaustion, with misunderstanding. I will let those things come to me so that you may be welcomed into the heart of things, so that you may never be kicked out of God's presence, so that you may win something you never competed for in the first place. And the apostle says, let's be a community that bears each other's burdens, that's willing to get their trouble on us. Jonathan Edwards said in one place, many times when people ask things of us, when they say, can you help out? We say, no, I can't help. I can't. There's no way I could help. And what we mean is, there's no way I could help you without somehow disadvantaging myself. There's no way I could give money here. Because if I give you that money, I'm not a genius, but then I won't have the money. If I give you my time, then I'm not going to have the time to do what I want to do. And Paul says, that's right. Yes, that's how it works. There's a mutuality here of sharing and bearing burdens. If you help somebody carry things, your arms are going to get tired. If you help somebody lift stuff, your back might get sore. If you go visit a sick person, you might catch their germs. If you give your money away, you won't have it. But Paul says all of these things are a manner of sowing to please the Spirit of God, and there will be a harvest. But if you sow to please yourself... I'll keep my money, thank you. I don't have time to help you. 
I only have time to help my own insular family. That's it. I only, we only have space for ourselves in our lives. Paul says you'll reap destruction. It's a matter of which appetite you indulge and which one you starve, which one you give to and which one you hold back from. So he says, shoulder each other's burdens. Carry each other's burdens. That fulfills the law of Christ. Frederick Beekner, in his book Godric, has a great scene where Godric is talking about his father. And he speaks about his father, whose name was Edelward. And his name, Godric says, means keeper of blessedness. And he says, but if so, he kept it mostly to himself. More is the pity. I pity pity Edelward, he said. I pity my father. But if he pitied me, he never said. It seems that he was ever striding off in every way but ours. So I scarcely had the time to mark the smile or the scowl of him. Even the look of his eyes is gone. They were as gray as the sea like mine, it is said, only full of kindness. But what does it matter how kind a man's eye is if it never fixes you with it long enough to know? He said, I had this father whose name was Keeper of Blessedness, and if he ever pitied me, I, don't, I would never know because he never told me. He was always moving in every direction but toward us. He had these kind eyes, but we never knew because they never fixed on us for very long. So what good were they to us? And the apostle says, we're the community that moves not away from trouble, but we move towards the trouble of others. How can I help you? What are the opportunities that you're fastening onto as you walk out into the day? What opportunities do I have? When we're doing this thing right, I think we will discover that we have profound privileges for the good of this community. A few years ago, you know, the tornadoes ripped through. And so many of you gave money and time, and we helped, we bought houses, we fixed houses, we fixed roofs. And at one setting, when some men from our congregation and others were fixing a roof of a house that belonged to a widow, a woman who had no insurance... Pastor Hutch had this realization. He said, man. No, I'm just kidding. (laughs) The church. The church was her insurance. And I thought, that is a perfect way of saying it. That's how God envisions the church in the world. We have, you realize, a vocation of doing good, which means right now in our moment, it's a vocation of damage control, says Philip Reef. See, we've lost the culture wars, which is probably good. It's good in the sense that we no longer can think that we get to exercise a power play to get everybody to do things the way we want. So now what we're doing is we're salt in all the rotting places of the world. The world's rotting. And we do damage control. We're the world's insurance. We're the people who are willing to give of ourselves when no one else will. We're the people who are willing to keep promises even when it hurts. We're the people who are willing to bear the troubles and the sorrows and the sicknesses and the poverty, the burdens of the people around us. We are the world's insurance as we depend on the Christ who daily bears our burdens. If you want to have a 
commitment to actual people in the community, not to a dream of the community. You've got to restore each other gently. You've got to shoulder each other's burdens. And lastly, you've got to share frequently. Let us not become weary in doing good, for at the proper time we will reap a harvest if we do not give up. Therefore, as we have opportunity, let us do good to all people, especially those who belong to the family of believers. Therefore, as we have opportunity, let us do good to all people, especially those who belong to the family of believers. A calling of ours is to share frequently. Kathy told me this story this week that is touching. And it's sweet, and it's the kind of story that only happens about dogs, and it never happens about cats, and I don't know what that tells you. It tells me something. But she told me this story about some friends of ours who grew up in Memphis. And they, they lived, as Providence would have it, near a Kentucky Fried Chicken. There was a stray dog that lived in this neighborhood, and this family took in this dog. It became theirs. But there was a peculiarity about this little dog that every afternoon at a certain time, this dog would leave its new home and it would make its way over to the Kentucky Fried Chicken. When it got to the Kentucky Fried Chicken, there were some generous-hearted Kentucky Fried Chickeners who would give this dog a literal dog bag, doggy bag, a bag with chicken in it, fried chicken, rolled up, in a sack, which the dog would then put in its mouth and walk back to his new adoption home, where on the front porch of that home, he would unroll, not with his digits, I guess with his, I don't know, I didn't get the details. He unrolled this bag and would spread out this feast before him and enjoy an embodiment of God's grace through fried chicken. This was a regular feature of his life. He had learned that he was in an economy not of competition but of sharing. He was in a home where they decided, we'll set the lonely in families. Generosity had given him a home and then the generosity of the Kentucky Fried Chicken people gave him an unlimited supply of tasty breaded fried things. And it's a lovely little metaphor for what the community of faith is supposed to be. You know, Paul says, the one who receives instruction in the word should share all good things with their instructor. Luther says, I don't ever preach this with any kind of fun. There's no joy in preaching this because it seems self-serving. But he's saying, support your teachers of the gospel. You guys do that. Corby and I make a living for our families because you guys share with us. And hopefully we're sharing with you. That we're a community we're told to share frequently, to look for opportunities to do good. You know, when the apostle describes to the Ephesians how they were once objects of God's wrath, but then God fastened his affection on them and breathed them into life, he says, it's by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is a gift so that nobody can boast or brag or peacock around. For you are God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus to do good works which Christ prepared in advance for you to do. You don't have to fuss and fiddle over your own salvation. It's a secure matter. So now you get to wake up in the morning and say, Lord, what are the opportunities 
for doing good that you want me to do in the world today? What competency do you want me to share for the benefit of others? What do you want me to do at my job that will help my customers, that will help the world? What do you want me to do at my house? What do you want me to do in my community? Lord, let me have ears that are attentive to how I can share. Let me have eyes that are alert to opportunities that present themselves for your life to come teeming out of me. You have gifts. You have abilities. You have even sorrows. Some of the greatest thing that you will share, the greatest good that you will do, will be bearing burdens with people who sorrow like you have. And the older you are, probably the more sorrow you have to steward. I heard one great story recently of a man who was talking about how he came to faith. And he told this story. I won't identify him because I haven't sought permission about this, but I don't think it's embarrassing, but I won't identify him. He told a story about how as a teenager he was friends with this gal who happened to have the misfortune of having a Presbyterian father, pastor, a Presbyterian pastor father. That's, you know, if that wasn't bad enough, my kids have that too. This is, that's the joke. If that wasn't bad enough, to get her driver's license, she had to memorize the Westminster Shorter Catechism. I think that's pretty cool. Get ready, Kaylor. So to get the drive, she had to learn 400-year-old questions and answers that no one understands today. But I think that's magnificent. And what's even more magnificent is that this man, who's now a godly husband and father, doing so much good in the world, said, this girl's memory saved my life. Her dad made her memorize stuff. Her memory was something that she stewarded. She had knowledge of God. She knew about his grace. She introduced him. Her memory saved my life. There is so many, so much endowment that's been given to you, whether it's money or time, whether it's ability or sorrow. If you're looking for the opportunities to say, Lord, do good through me today, you'll be astounded. And when the apostle says, therefore, as we have opportunity, let us do good to all people, especially those who belong to the family of believers. It's important to realize he's not just saying, you have to give your money first to the church and then then outside. He's saying, avoid the tendency that happens to all kinds of people to move in a state of Afghanistanitis, which is an expression that Eugene Peterson used. A lot of people, it's, you won't find this in the DSMV4, a lot of people have a psychological condition called Afghanistanitis, which is to say they don't feel like they're actually serving anyone or doing anything unless it's heroic and for someone far away. And so Paul wants to say, you know, the sphere around you, the people that you're with the most, they're going to be the ones that have the greatest claim on you. So make sure you're serving them. Don't wait for the heroic moment. Don't wait for the the huge thing. Do the small things that need to be done, the good that needs to be done. You know, C.S. Lewis had in screw tapes one of these these demonic tricks on his Christian patient. Was here's what you want to do. He lives with his mom still. He's a believer, but his mom's overbearing. She's very controlling. She's constantly nagging him, and he's growing to hate her. If you can do this, you will succeed, demons. Help him. To be deeply concerned and have all sorts of warm regard for people in China he's never met. 
and secretly let him hate this woman that he lives with. In the end, you will succeed in helping him to have completely imaginary love and utterly real hatred, and he'll never know. Paul's trying to keep us from that, from dreaming that we're loving people because we're unbothered people. And he says, here are the people that you love. Love the household of God first, the family of God. Make sure that you're caring for the needs around you, that you're doing good. And then as an extension, send out missionaries. Care for the poor around the world. Do other things. There's all kinds of opportunities to be generous. Restore gently shoulder burdens and share frequently. And I'll close with this. On a Father's Day, it seems fitting that this Ian Crone from Jesus, my father, the CIA, and me, this young boy, now a man, reflecting on learning that his father was this man he didn't know. He was a CIA operative. He thought he just went off on business trips. He finds out later his dad was this heroic man, but when he was at home, he was a drunk. He couldn't stand the beige suburban existence. He needed the the adrenaline rush of espionage. But one day from Belfast, he sent his little nine-year-old son a postcard that said, do you want to know a secret? I love you. Do you want to know a secret? I love you. That's what he said to his son. And the older man reflects on that and says, I would have given anything for my father's love not to be a secret. Anything. A boy needs a father to show him how to be in the world. He needs to be given swagger, taught how to read a map so that he can recognize the roads that lead to life and the paths that lead to death. How to know what love requires and where to find steel in his heart when life makes demands on us that are greater than we think we can endure. A young boy needs a father to tell him that life is a loner who helps him discover why God sent him to this troubled earth so he doesn't die without trying to make it better. I would have given anything for my father's love not to be a secret. The apostle's conviction is this. There's a community of people, no matter who have been well-fathered or not by humanly fathers, who have not been orphaned on this planet. They don't endure cosmic loneliness, and nor do they have to shoulder the anxieties of living as frail creatures in aggravated times. But we have a father who has set his affection on us and said, you are the apple of my eye. Now be a pilot project of that in the community. Be a circulatory system that shows everybody that God's love for them is not a secret. Make it plain with touch, with money, with words, with hugs, with opening your home and opening your life. Make the Father's love not a secret. Make it utter reality. No one has seen God. But when we love one another, John says, his love is made complete in us. The apostle doesn't want us to have a dream of Christian community that we love more than the community itself. He wants us to love the actual people sitting beside you and behind you and in front of you, the people at your work, the people that you'll pass on the street. Make sure they know that the love of the Father is not a secret as you fulfill your vocation as a church of doing good.
Amen.